Hello, Internet. My name is Walter Ciades Fedchuk, and welcome back to another episode of the Final Cut Podcast presented by the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. It is the penultimate episode of 2022. Uh, we have finally gotten a snowstorm here uh, in the Northeast. Uh, Rochester barely got anything, but Buffalo, there were parts of Buffalo completely shut down, uh, upwards of six, almost seven feet of snow. My beloved Buffalo Bills had to travel to uh, Detroit to play a football game. It is it is quite cold uh, up here, although it's been a little bit rainy here in the great state of New York in the great white Northeast. And of course, coming from uh, the lovely, sunny, gorgeous land of California is my podcast co-host and great, great friend, Chase Wassener. Chase, how are you doing on this gorgeous final day of November? Yeah, I, first of all, it is very nice to be in a state that if we're, we don't really have seasons the same way as everybody else does. I visit my parents in Colorado when I want to experience what winter is actually like. Um, but it's nice to to be here and be able to be comfortable in my own apartment without needing the heating on all day. I'm not going to to argue with that. I am going to be upset with the passage of time. The idea that this is the penultimate episode of the year blows my mind. Uh, unacceptable how quickly this year has gone. But I am very excited about the thing we're going to talk about because uh, if we're going to only have two more episodes to close out the year, this is a film that was worth putting on that list. Absolutely. I, I am very excited to, uh, to discuss this movie. But Chase, in the pre-call, I teased a little story about what happened at this point, an hour before we've begun recording, but about 30 minutes before we hopped on a call, uh, I initially pushed back the time because I needed to stop and get dinner. Then you pushed back the time because you needed to get dinner. And less than five minutes after you, you texted me and said, hey, I need to push it back. This event happened. Now, if any of you listened to the, uh, the, the uh, Steam Cleaners podcast that just happened last week, you've now learned... I now have two cats. I have two six-month-old kittens. I've posted photos of them on Twitter. I've had them for now um, just under three weeks. Two days ago, we found a mouse in our kitchen. Oh. And five minutes after you texted me, Chase, one of our beautiful young kittens caught this mouse Dragged it upstairs from the kitchen into my partner's office up here, which has kind of been the cat's room for the last couple of weeks while we get them acclimated to the house. And began playing with it in the, the pen that we kind of have in there that has their litter box and their food dish and everything. Um, to which my partner then, you know, asked me to come help and assist. Um, the mouse was not dead. They were doing the kitten thing of we catch it, I bat it until it stops moving, I let it go, it runs, I catch it, I bat it until it stops moving, I let it go. Uh, for a few minutes while I went and successfully grabbed a, a used coffee, uh, plastic coffee cup, captured the mouse, slid a piece of cardboard underneath it, took it outside, threw it into the woods, and I hope that mouse uh, counts its lucky stars because there were two kittens in that room that definitely would have played with it until it died of exhaustion. <laughs> so wow. thank you for pushing it back another half an hour. <laughs> well, I'm glad I could help, though. I'll be honest, I'm kind of bummed for your cats. The, to them, that was a banner day. Look, the young uh, stepping up, they have, they have captured this mouse that had been infesting your apartment, and you repay them by capturing it and throwing it out into the wild? I, I mean, I'm just saying, uh, Tom from Tom and Jerry never saw such lofty successes uh, that you have have taken away so rudely, as I'm sure your your kittens uh, feel. Though it's probably best for the mouse. I'm sure the mouse appreciates it. Um, so, well, well pros see, and cons. We, we did. We gave the the kitten some churu, which is Chase. You don't have a cat, but it's like kitten gogurt, basically. Okay. It's like a liquid cat treat that comes in a tube. It's like gogurt. Um, but also the cats have have. Last night we discovered we could teach the cats how to sit. 
So my partner spent most of the evening after she got home from work playing with them and treating them with chicken when they sat, when she said sit. So it's been, it's been a banner day to be Pina and Jasmine, the kittens in my household. But Chase, much like I released that mouse, that mouse now has a quest. And it is to seek revenge on the people that murdered its father. I'm sorry, no, wait, that's the plot line of The Northman, the movie that we're discussing today, uh, which, Chase, you actually brought up a, a really good comparison that I hadn't thought about because I'm not an English major like you are. But before we get to that comparison, just right off the bat, Chase, what were your thoughts? Why did you want to watch this movie? What were your expectations going in to Robert Eggers' The Northman? So this was a film I was actually meant to watch when it was in theaters, but unfortunately I was, I got sick at the time. And so I wasn't able to join my roommate and a couple of mutual friends when they went to go see it. Uh, I have only seen one Robert Eggers film previously. That was the lighthouse. And that was a trip. Uh, very good at capturing these scenes, you know, this kind of like these intimate moments between two characters uh, and kind of letting their guard drop and and recognizing the, um, I guess the the earnestness of the human condition in a way that in that film is twisted in a in a kind of terrifying sense a lack of of control over one's uh, mind and and the slow descent into madness. This is luckily not that which meant I always knew I was going to be more of a fan of this than I was going to be of that just because I, I don't like people messing with my mind. Not a thing I enjoy. Not a theme I like seeing explored. I like my free will exactly where it is. Thank you very much. Um, but this film is, in so many ways, it captures what makes Robert Eggers an interesting filmmaker in the way that it gets these characters that you can easily latch onto, that he knows how to shoot them in a way that captures their humanity and their vulnerability at times um, while being purposed for this larger Norse epic. And I love Viking stories. I love Norse mythology. Um, I, I think that uh, it can sometimes get a bad rap because the worst people, you know, are also big fans of Viking culture, but uh, the heart of these stories uh, is, is very much seated in this kind of human uh, desire to prove oneself against the odds, overcome adversity, uh, accomplish these great tasks with this near superhuman strength. Um, and this provided a really interesting twist uh, that I didn't realize going in until I heard the name Amleth. And I was like, oh, we're doing a Hamlet. Got it. Um, because for those of you who don't know, Amleth is an anagram for Hamlet. Uh, and Amleth is the original story that the uh, English uh, based the story of Hamlet on. Uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet, uh, very much based on that story. So um, was really excited when I heard that and really, really happy with the changes they made to that story because this was a lot of fun. I also... Uh, had wanted to see this film when it came out. I remember I saw it, um, trailers for it, seeing some movie with my partner that I'm sure we've discussed on the podcast and was like, oh, that's the, oh man, that seems right up my jam. I love me some historical fiction. I love me some revenge stories. Anna Taylor Joy. I, I like it. Like, ah, oh, this, yeah, this is, this is pulling at my, my strings here. Never saw it while I was in the theaters. And then kind of now as we've been figuring out what we wanted to watch, uh, I happened to see in some article that all of a sudden it was on streaming. And I was like, Chase, we got to watch this movie. I feel like, you know, it's up my, up my alley. And I'm so glad that it was something that you had also wanted to pursue as well. Um, Cause it was, it was definitely something that I wanted to catch up on and watch um like i said the comparison to hamlet i never would have uh, never would have brought that up one because i fucking hate shakespeare uh and two i'm just not clever enough to look into what the name amleth means and makes that connection chase 
you mentioned that you think it does a better job and that there are things that you like that they changed from the Shakespearean Hamlet story. What what were some of those things for someone who maybe remembers absolutely nothing about Hamlet? Yeah, so it's it's interesting because this, first of all, uh, the original myth of Amleth is... Uh, a fascinating one that can be traced all the way back to the ninth, to the tenth century, excuse me, of uh, old Norse uh, poetry, uh, one of those kind of epic poems that you used to get back in the day. Um, in that one, a lot of the character names are very similar to what we got in this movie. Um, the uh, betrayal of the uh, uncle against the father. Uh, is there, but uh, instead our protagonist pretends to be uh, basically too stupid to be able to recognize what's happening. Um, and so he's able to like hang out and eventually is sent away. And there's a letter that like, Hey, you should kill this. Uh, you should kill Amleth when he gets here. And Amleth changes it to be the, uh, no, actually you should kill the people delivering this message and you should allow me to marry uh, your daughter so that I can become the king of Britain um, and ends up marrying the princess, going back to Denmark, uh, being sent off on a different mission in which he takes on a second wife that apparently they're perfectly fine with uh, in uh, in Scotland and uh, in Britain at the time. Um, and uh, then he ends up dying in a completely different, unrelated battle to his mission, having already gotten uh, revenge against his dad. So you can see a couple different points there, right? Uh, for those of you who are familiar with Hamlet, you would recognize the idea of the, uh, the uncle killing the father in order to become king and taking his wife's, uh, the, the, uh, the king's wife as his own. Um, in both of the original narratives, the queen is not given a lot of agency because we weren't very good at giving women agency in stories like that for uh, far too long in history. Um, but the, you know, Hamlet being sent away and having to uh, get uh, kind of trick uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern uh, into uh, changing the letter so that he can um, get them killed instead of himself, that kind of back and forth, um, nature of it is is very much there in hamlet and and hamlet uh very much dies in the attempt to uh get uh revenge uh though in his case it comes out um uh in kind of a uh poisonous angle to it um and this film uh is better than both of those stories in my humble opinion um, having him be sent away of his own free will, rowing away and integrating himself into a different place, that kind of rejecting one's fate and then being forced to accept it um, is something that's very traditional to like the great hero myth um, that we, we've seen so much in like the kind of traditional hero's journey. Um, and I, I think that change works out well. There's much more of a focus on fate and this idea of uh, the inevitability of some of the actions that will take place and how one chooses to accept or reject that, that I think are more clearly fleshed out in this. Um, and the idea that uh, the king, the father of our protagonist here, was actually an asshole and that the queen actually was not only one, perfectly happy with this arrangement and uh, you know, totally believed in the uncle's uh, argument that this was saving her from a bad relationship. But then she also like kisses her own son in order to pull the, well, if you kill him, I'll be, I'm staying queen here. Brilliant scene, brilliant moment, brilliant character development um, makes her character way more interesting. Um, and the the partner that he gets, who he doesn't end up married to, and she's not a princess, um, you know, she's just another person like him trying to make her best in this kind of slavery situation that they put themselves in. Um, that change makes her 
more interesting and makes Amleth's decision to go back to get his revenge way more heartbreaking. So lots of changes between Amleth and Hamlet and lots of changes from both of them into this film, all of which I think were great decisions. So shout out to the writers of, of this film, Robert Eggers and uh, uh, the Icelandic uh, poet John. I, I don't think I pronounced that correctly. Um, S-J-O-N. Very talented work on this. Uh, good job. It was so different from Hamlet, I didn't even recognize it was Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> it is very interesting, though, that you sort of bring up this discussion of fate because there are numerous moments in this movie uh, where where Amleth, played by Alexander Skarsgård, does follow his fate does follow the path of what he's supposed to be doing the you know i will avenge you father i will save you mother i will kill you you know fjorn and repeating this as a child as he escapes and then repeating it later on as he then as he has avoided going after and, and following his fate when he is then reminded of what his duty is and that he must get revenge for his father's killer uh repeating that self to himself as he sort of steals himself and willingly enslaves himself so he can uh, be sent off to where Fjolnir, uh, now known as Fjolnir, the brotherless, uh, has created his own kingdom, farm, in uh, a very rural, hilly area of, of Iceland. Uh, willingly, he willingly brands himself. He, he gets rid of all of his, you know, supposed freedom, his freedom from his fate, essentially, and enslaves himself and, and reminds himself of his tasks and sets forth again to accomplish his goal, avenging his father, freeing his mother, and you're murdering Fjolnir. But he's not the only one that has sort of this interpretation and this discussion of fate. There is sort of this discussion of what Fjolnir is supposed to be. He is, as uh, Nicole Kidman's Queen uh, Gudrun says later that he was. He was this brilliant man. He was this tactical genius, except then he loses a fight to uh, the, the king of Norway, uh, Hothgar, I believe, um, is what they say. And he has to flee away from, you know, the homeland that he had, he had captured by, uh, by killing the king, uh, the war raven. And is now living this like secluded lifestyle, but for some reason they treated it as if it is a kingdom. He is, you know, treating is teaching his sons how to do all of the meaningful chores because, well, why are you asking, you know, the slaves or, or the people underneath you to do it if you're not willing or don't know how to do it yourself? Queen Gudrun seems to be also enjoying her life, even though maybe it is not as lofty uh, as what they had initially had. And it seems like fate has sort of allowed. Uh, Gudrun and Fjolnir to sort of begin anew, to have their own child, raise, you know, the, the baby that uh, Fjolnir had already, the son Fjolnir had already had into, you know, an, an older gentleman that definitely had some vibes of like, oh, he, he's totally going to kill his father and take the, take the throne when he gets the first chance. He had some major, like, low-key vibes to him. Mm -hmm. um, and also that, the, the fate of, of Olga of the Birch Forest, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, of what her role in all of this is, is that she her role does seem to be this, you know, love interest and fated um, accomplice to Amleth's revenge. Because revenge, revenge isn't always easy to pull off by yourself. And almost any good sort of revenge fantasy or movie does have some sort of partner that the the i guess we'll use hero either loses or is betrayed by or something happens that sort of furthers the desire for revenge because there is additional harm that is wrought on them um chase you also sort of this movie is a revenge movie at, at its core how how do you think they play it because it doesn't feel like a revenge movie sometimes. Well, the thing that's really good about it and why I like it maybe more than uh, Hamlet and certainly more than the original uh, Amleth story is because this film asks the question, is he right to pursue this fate? 
Like, it is taken for granted in most films of this genre, right? That the person we're following is the protagonist. And if fate tells him that there's a thing that he's meant to do, then it is a good thing that he is going out and doing it. Rejecting your fate is inherently seen as cowardly, which uh, the witch that he sees um, when he's raiding villages in kind of the first act of the film points out, you can't escape your fate. You have to face it. That's part of being the person that you are meant to be. But the more you learn about it and the more you see it put into action, you have to ask the question, is this a goal worth pursuing? It, does it make anything better when he goes to this, um, you know, this, this secluded uh, area that the uh, king has been kind of forced back onto having lost those fights and taking out uh, valuable resources or the people around him, right? Like, does killing Thorir make society better for the, the people that he is living with at that time? Does his mom want to be freed? Because it sure sounds like from her telling that the person that he is trying to avenge was an asshole. She doesn't want to be saved. She wanted to be saved, which is why uh, King Art Vendel was killed in the first place. That was her freeing herself by enabling that to happen and by providing the information that made that assassination possible. So when it comes to a, a, a prophecy that he believes is about avenging the father who is revealed to be an asshole, freeing the mother who freed herself that caused all of this to happen in the first place, and he ends up killing the younger brother that he at one point tries to save, there's that moment that uh, Alexander Skarsgård does a brilliant job of capturing when he kills the mom who thanks him for it as he stabs her, that she's getting that kind of noble Viking death having been slain in what is essentially combat. Um, and, and the young uh, brother being killed as well. And you see him wrestle with that. Like, am I the bad guy here? Am I wrong for having pursued this fate to its natural end. But he does it anyway, because it's the thing that he believes his entire life has been built around, that all of these different people and their assumptions of what his life should be have indicated to him that he is meant to pursue until its bitter end. And at the end, it costs him his life. It costs him his uncle's life. It costs him his mom and his half-brother's lives. And we only get a hint that the children that uh, Amleth has will go on to take back over at some point, somehow. And even that is only told in the kind of, uh, not, it's, I guess, like vision sequences, things that are entirely in Amleth's head. He has built up this idea that his family, because of his actions, will go on to save a people that arguably didn't need to be saved. Well, I mean, the slaves sure did. And the use of slave labor is certainly a bad thing that I think we can all get behind. I think we can all agree that the uncle's not a good guy. But as far as for the people as a whole, it's not like Amleth cares about the people. It's not like Amleth ever collaborates with any of the citizens of the town in order to make this happen. He's got a mission after all. He was chosen to do this. And I think that that subversion, that question that we are left with of whether or not this was the right thing for Amleth to do, whether Amleth is the hero or villain of this story, whether the scheming of people like Gudrun was for better or for worse whether the, you know, death of Thorir is meant to be the prevention of that kind of takeover that you pointed out, he seemed to be wired to want to pursue, or whether it ended up spelling a downfall for so many different people by kicking that snowball that would ine inevitably kind of build and build until the impact was inevitable. Um, I love that. 
I love how the film handled that. And I would love for films that have similar themes in the future to take something from that. It doesn't have to be a clear answer. We can just have characters that are so compelling that we want to see what happens, even as we know that the effects of those actions will be fucking complicated. It is kind of weird to look at this because there is this prevailing question that you ask yourself in that moment as he he learns of what really happened to his father of if Amleth knew this, if he knew that his father was so terrible and that Gudrun basically orchestrated all this because she was happier with the uncle, would he have pursued the revenge? If this was her choice and truly Fjolnir and Gudrun seem incredibly happy. Like, let's be honest. Like, granted, it's not this, like, large hall that they had earlier. It's not all these lands. It's not all of this, you know, um, promising victory from all these Viking raids. It, it's a modest homestead that, you know, they keep getting slaves because of his previous deeds or whatnot. But they all seem happy. They have two children. Again, Thorir does have sort of some, like, menacing, I'm probably going to kill my father at some point and take over and bed my mother and... Who cares? Now we have Oedipus instead of Hamlet, but they do seem happy. And it gives you that moment of, if Amleth knew all this, if he knew that everything that happened led to them all being happy, and him actually seeming to be rather happy being this sort of berserking raider on the other side of things, would he have followed through on the revenge? And the answer is probably yes. Because the other key part we're forgetting here is this relationship that he then builds up with Olga. Where if he never goes on to try and pursue this revenge even further, he will never meet her, he will never fall for her, he will never follow that line of fate and then come to that moment that the skull of, uh, of Hymir the Fool, played by Willem Dafoe, which, brilliant casting choice, awesome, choice. we'll get to that in a little bit, basically goes like, you're going to have to choose between family and revenge, and very clearly in the moment, you're like, okay, well, that means like between his, like what his mother wants and and, Fjol and like killing Fjolnir, which he her, his mother probably doesn't want Fjolnir to necessarily be killed because that is the father of at least one, probably two of her children. I'm guessing Thorir is actually also her child. Um, but you don't get to that point. You don't get to that relationship unless you pursue the path of revenge. And then he's given the choice again. Do you continue to follow through with your revenge or do you follow this other path that, you know, would make you happy that you have this budding relationship with, with Olga and in that moment, then he discovers he has children and why would you abandon your children? The important thing there, right, is that's the moment where he does know he has learned all of the details at this point. He can no longer say that he was going in blind and that he is not firmly aware of what going back means. And he tries to frame it as this idea that he is rejecting the binary that fate has provided, while anyone watching at home understands that by making the choice that he did, he has absolutely opted into the path of revenge, that there is no way back for this man. It's the classic Confucius uh, line, right? If you seek revenge, dig two graves. He's abdicated any responsibility for his actions at that point. Yeah, he can't. He he has already made up in his mind. I don't want to say it's quite sunk cost fallacy, but I, I do think there is that idea of he's gone so far. He's dedicated so much to this. And the idea that he could have sacrificed this much and at some point this uncle comes back and gets revenge and he loses it was so unacceptable that he was blinded by the fact that going back to do this would make his end inevitable, that it would play into exactly what the fates told him would happen to him. And I think that that's, that's that kind of classic hubris that you see in a lot of Greek myths that I think really comes to a head there. The idea that I can beat fate by doing the thing that fate has already said that I am going to do and that I am incapable of realizing in that moment is 
the trap that I was bound to fall into all along. It's just but I don't really well executed. I don't think he thinks he's going to defeat fate. Like he is not going to back to fight Fjolnir because he thinks like, yeah, I'm going to fucking kill this dude and I'll come, I'll come meet you later. That is 100% a moment of I am going to die. I am going to die in this fight. And I'm just not going to admit this to this woman that I love who is now because I psychically, telepathically, visionally, Greek, you know, um, Norse mythology, no, you're carrying my two children. Like, again, that's why I say he's abdicating responsibilities for his actions by going, well, you know, like, Fjolnir is obviously going to come kill you, so I might as well go kill him now. And like, what if you lose that fight? Like, Fjolnir can still go kill them. If you if you lose that fight, Fjolnir can still go kill them if he wants. Like, you think he's going to be happy just killing you? Nah, fuck you, dude. He's going to, like, blind you and tie you to a rock and be like, all right, peace, bro. Like, I'm going to go get my revenge by killing your wife and children. Like, come on. But this nuance, this subtlety, this, this adding the shades of gray to this, what should be kind of a very simple question of, you know, revenge, is... As we were kind of prepping here, I mentioned Chase to something. These move this movie reminded me a lot of the Ridley Scott versions of this movie. Robin Hood, Gladiator, Kingdom of Heaven, these historical fiction pieces. And from a cinematography standpoint, from the you know, styling of the camera, from all these sweeping landscape shots. If you had told me it was a Ridley Scott film, just from the visuals of the movie, I would have been like, yeah, okay, I can kind of see that. Like, all right, yeah, this feels... And you told me just the general plot of the movie. Viking's father is killed by his uncle. He goes on a quest to seek revenge. There's a love interest. Battles take place. Everything. I'd be like, hell yeah, like totally Ridley Scott. But the difference between this and Gladiator is what you brought up of... It tells the revenge story better because it keeps giving these options of you could just let it go. You don't need to do this. See, he's a shell of his former self. He's on this, you know, this hill in Iceland. Like, what the fuck is he doing with his life? He's he's just trying to survive out here. What in reality is, what is he threatening? What is he doing? He is... You know, he's weak at this point. And from what you've heard, he's been battered into submission. He doesn't have an army. He's no threat to anyone. Go home. What's the point? This isn't the bombast of Joaquin Phoenix in Gladiator. This isn't, you know, in, in Kingdom of Heaven, the sort of religious ferocity that kind of is the revenge fantasy that's being played out. It's none of those things. It's this... Dude who used to be a king because he murdered his brother, and now he has a little plot of land in the middle of nowhere that he's barely surviving on. He is a king of nothing. And really, what are you going to gain by murdering him other than perhaps assuaging your own guilty heart? Absolutely nothing. What does Marcus Aurelius get by by um, murdering the, the emperor in Gladiator? Well, he gets revenge for his family. His family were brutally murdered because he was afraid that Marcus Aurelius was going to become the, the emperor of Rome. He has a very blatant, he has nothing left to lose. He didn't gain anything by becoming this big gladiator. Did he gain some fame? He was fucking Marcus Aurelius. He was the biggest general in the Roman army. Him being a gladiator means absolutely nothing. It is purely, I have nothing left to lose other than this quest. And I'm either going to succeed in it and die, or I'm going to fail it and die. But either way, I'll be reunited with my family. And instead here, Amleth, he has everything to lose. He loses a family, but he gains a family. And then he throws it away so that he can follow through on something he said he was going to do as like an 11-year-old boy. Like, who, what do any of us do that we, like, promise that we did as an 11-year-old child? Probably nothing at this point. How many times do we change what our career goals are going to be? Chase, you kind of sighed when I said Ridley Scott earlier in the in the pre-show stuff. So, I, what do you think? Well, no, I mean, first of all, I'm just trying to think of what my goals were when I was uh, 11. And it did involve... Um, 
talking into a microphone. Uh, so I at least got that part going for me. Uh, I was thinking more like a football broadcaster at the time because I didn't know what esports were. Um, so, you know, we all have our, our <laughs> twists and turns at it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Ridley Scott point is a really interesting one, right? Because Ridley Scott is very good at telling these kind of historical epics. Um, I think it's hard for me to see it, both because I have less experience with Ridley Scott than you, and because I I have, am familiar with The Lighthouse. Um, in this film, there were a lot of moments uh, that reminded me of that. Any of the scenes with the uh, the witches or um, with William Defoe's character, um, that kind of surrealist blending of reality and fantasy and the question of what is real and what is not and whether that matters if it drives the person receiving this message towards action anyway, that's Eggers through and through. Um, that's something that he does masterfully in The Lighthouse, which, again... I have my sensitivities to because he hits at my very specific phobias, but is a fantastic film that I hope to never see again. Um, I think this is a film that takes what I love about that, but points it in a direction that I find um, I can, I can grip onto more easily. I, I think that there certainly is that idea of, you know, what are you fighting for? Um, that's something that, that really Scott does capture well. And I, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, that's kind of a core of, of storytelling and, and filmmaking this, you know, getting to the heart of what it means to fight for something. And when that moment comes that you are forced to question whether you are fighting for the right things. And this film does such a good job of blending the surreal with the tangible that the you, you could watch this entire thing and think like, Oh yeah, look, he did the thing as he was told to do it. It's a, it's a successful hero's journey. It follows all the steps of the hero's journey point for point uh, mission accomplished. You don't always make it back at the end. Um, but he gets to, to Valhalla is, is what he sees as he dies. Um, but it leaves room for that much more cynical take. And maybe that's the part that just from my uh, experience with Ridley Scott, which again, is I think is a little bit more limited. I don't think that's a punch he'd be willing to make. I don't see Ridley Scott as the kind of person to force the, an answer to the question, was this mission ever the mission that it was made out to be? Or was this spurred on by a combination of, drugs, mysticism, a lack of purpose, etc. Uh, and also the when you follow this through to the end, were you right to do so? I think if you look at Gladiator, right? Like you, he there's no doubt in that film that uh Marcus Aurelius deserved the fate that he got. Whether or not it it was worth it in the end to our protagonist is one thing, but there's no doubt that he, you know, Marcus Aurelius is an asshole, um, that he, he'd done some terrible things and that his fate is not something that people would mourn. Fjolnir is more complicated because we get such limited windows into him um, and because the things that we get muddy the waters in a way that makes it clear that the film wants you to sit in the discomfort of the idea that the person we've been rooting for this whole time may not be the person we should have been rooting for this whole time. That there is some other version of the story that follows Fjolnir instead, and it is a tragedy of a man who did what he could to take back his land from a brother that had lost his way, forges a new family, successfully escapes after a lost war uh, with the Danes, and builds a new life only for the son of that brother coming back to destroy everything he had built. That story is also true in this. And I don't know that Ridley Scott does that as much as, uh, as what we see here. Um, so I, I don't know. It, it's super interesting as a comparison point. And I, I definitely see the points that you're making, but um, I, I, I think that that gap 
is the thing that both separates this film and that makes this film substantially more interesting to me. Um, just from a, from a narrative perspective, it, fascinating choices throughout. It could also have been a comedy film if they just spent two hours with Willem Dafoe playing a, a crazy old mystic in Norse mythology. <laughs> but that being said, no, I don't think there's any way that Ridley Scott could have created this film. And that is not a slight on Ridley Scott. I think it that he has a he has an archetype, especially with these historical fiction, and I'm talking historical historical fictions, not more modern things like Body of Lies or or, or something like that, um, or The Martian. Like he has a very distinct style when it comes to these medieval kind of period pieces that he likes to do i'm just think about we talked about the last duel think about the differences between the last duel and this what nuance was there in the last duel there's none it's pretty straightforward i i guess maybe the nuance that is there is that adam driver's character thought he was the hero somehow in all of this <laughs> um and that just doesn't exist here because in this there there are there are no heroes there are really no villains. This is more just humanity is how this movie feels. It feels very natural of what would these these people do? What would these characters do? And it, it comes across exceptionally natural. You know, Olga on the on the boat begging for Amleth to stay. And then when he leaves, obviously she's a witch, so she, you know, calls the wind to bring her away from him because she knows she can't help him and she can't change his mind, so she might as well just go. Um, it was very human. Those are very tangible. And I, I think that's what I enjoy so much about this film is that it's very, very real. Um, the other difference is that a Ridley Scott film would have been way more fucking violent. <laughs> there would have been a lot more battles. Uh, there would have been a lot more fighting. And instead, we get a very... We have a couple of very, you know, kind of violent things. I think the the Viking raid that we see towards the beginning where Amleth and the rest kind of, you know, become wolves, so to speak, is a very kind of traditional and I, I think even actual historical thing that, Nor that Norse um, warriors at that time, they did have these like barbarian kind of raiders that would ingest... Um, you know, potions from berries and plants and smoke inhaled from fires and would howl and act like animals. And that's sort of how they detach themselves from some of these horrors um, that they were committing. And, and, you know, what is built on the mythology of Norse warriors being invulnerable or, or whatnot. Um, but really, most of the violence that occurs is this Assassin's Creed style, I'm going to pretend to be a fucking boogeyman. And like, <laughs> kill people in the shadows and like poison them and make them hallucinate so that they're going to see all of these shadows and shapes and trip over themselves and and all of these things and chase again in the pre-call i mentioned i thought it was a pretty pretty not violent movie for what it could have been <laughs> and you looked at rotten tomatoes it was like People don't think that. So. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of, uh, if you look at the Rotten Tomatoes audience, you see a lot of people being like, I almost walked out of the theater because it was so violent. Um, and if you look at the top critics, like the, I've got one here, WXIX TV in Cincinnati. It's brutally violent, but there's something really beautiful about it. Um, there, uh, uh, Harold's son in Australia, this brutally violent yet soaringly lyrical action epic is quite unlike anything captured on screen before. I think I get how we got there. And it's because the closing scene involves two very muscular men fighting to the death naked on a volcano. And I really cannot, I like we've somehow managed to go 44 minutes without explaining that the climactic fight of this film involves two men beaten, bruised, bloodied fighting naked atop a, a volcano. Um, but I cannot stress enough how awesome that shot is. Like, what a beautiful way for this film to end. What a fantastic set piece to set up for yourself. Uh, more films should involve naked fights atop a volcano. Just saying. It's a, it's a smart way to go. Um, and I think stuff like that maybe permeates in people's heads. You know, it's not so much that there's as much consistent bloody violence throughout as the fact that when there is violence, the blood is certainly a substantial part of it, 
or at least that the film is built to capture the brutality of it, to capture the reality of it, at least to some point. I don't think they do so uh, as much when he kills the, uh, the mom and the younger brother, which, you know, I wouldn't focus too much on the brutal violence when it comes to killing the child character either. So I think that was probably a good choice, but there are definitely some other moments in which they do embrace that side of it. Um, which to me is just an important reminder that violence when used purposefully can be a really valuable tool in stories like this. It's not about, uh, how bloody a film is. It's about making the blood that's there matter. And I feel like this film does a good job at that. The, the best moments in what I consider, you know, violent films are when you're watching the Patriots and the cannonball is bouncing across the battlefield and, and takes out somebody's knee um, just by running into it, not by like hitting them or exploding or anything like that. It just bounces into it. And boom, there goes his knee because it's like a 20 pound rock that's just being hurled at, you know, uh, explosive speeds bouncing across the ground. Um, you know, there are moments like, I mean, I just finished watching House of the Dragon and there is a, a violently bloody moment where a character has their eye slashed out of their face and that sort of helps change what that character becomes and, and what that matters i mean yeah there's a moment in this movie where a dude walks into the the slave house um where all, all the women slaves are and he's like fucking been disemboweled by amleth and he's holding his fucking guts like okay yeah that's fucking gruesome and, and that's violent but even that scene of two muscular naked men fighting on top of a volcano to me, it's it's just violent because it's a fight, but it's not like it's not like they're showing all of these like slashes and the blood spurting and all this thing. It's more that it's feral, and that it is two ravenous dogs or ravenous wolves or these wild animals that are just going after each other because their very survival depends on it. It is not a violence. What did you say that TV station was in Cincinnati? W uh, WXIX. WXIX. Have you guys never watched a Tarantino film? <laughs> like, and I don't want to compare this to a Tarantino film, but come on, guys. Like, incredible violence? Like, come on. Let's be honest. There are way more violent films than The Northmen. And the times that they choose to do it, the unbridled ferocity of these wolfmen berserkers is then dissipated by, like, afterwards the people that are committing the like horrendous violence against the, the villagers of this, that are burning down their houses that are choosing which ones are going to be slaves that are shoving the, you know, unworthy into a, a longhouse that they're about to burn to the fucking ground. It's not the wolfmen. It's not Amleth and his berserkers. It's normal fucking dudes wearing like, just medieval armor and tunics and things and laughing and joking and dangling the children, you know, the babe away from, you know, away from its mother and be like, ah, I'm going to kill this one. Like, fuck you. The real monsters in this movie are just normal men. And to me, all of these parallels kind of show that Gudrun obviously cannot defeat Amleth in like hand-to-hand -hand combat, but how can she defeat him? with the truth that is that scene again to bring it up is so poetic is so perfectly well done where it reminds me of Kate Blanchett in Nightmare Alley and I had to have to say that because I had to double check that and was like wait Nicole Gidman wasn't in Nightmare Alley oh nope it was Kate Blanchett but it's the, it's the same thing of oh I can't fight you one-on-one -on -one, but like here's the truth Oh yeah, that hurts a lot more than a sword to the stomach does, doesn't it? That hurts a lot. It's just so perfectly well done. It, it's... I really, really, really enjoyed this movie. And we've mentioned a few of the, the actors' names. Uh, and, and just to go kind of quickly through it. Amleth, played by Alexander Skarsgård. Um, Gudrun, played by Nicole Kidman. Uh, Kals Bang, I apologize if I 
mispronounced it, uh, playing Fjolnir. Uh, Ethan Hawke was the King Arvindel, the War Raven. Anna Taylor-Joy playing Olga. Um, Willem Dafoe as the Fool. Um, Bjork is the Witch, apparently. That's pretty fucking dope. Um, and there are some, I, I don't know any of these people, but there are some very sort of kind of Norse-sounding names. Ingvar Sigurdsson, um, playing the the he witch that is holding uh, Willem Dafoe's skull, um, so it does seem, and and obviously, you know that this Norse poet Sean, um, being the one who helped write it with Robert Eggers, it shows that there is a real care to not only their casting decisions but to the material that they're using, to where this is all coming from, and that this isn't just a like, hey, let let's do a Viking movie. Let's do something cool. It was, hey, let's be very respectful to the culture that we are crafting this from and let us try and honor it rather than exploit it. Chase, out of all of the acting performances, who do you think stood out to you the most? Ah, oh, man, there's so many good performances in this. I mean, <laughs> Willem Dafoe is perfect for the role that he's in uh, and he knows how to capture that uh, surreal creepy but still captivating aesthetic so brilliantly um alexander skarsgård does a great job in the lead uh you know he has a lot that he needs to carry and he captures the emotional range of it really well anya taylor joy as olga i think does a fantastic job i think the the way in which he handles the scene in which he leaves with the both the brutality of the loss and the pain that she clearly feels while also immediately being able to capture that and push it in this way that, like, if you believe the visions that we are seeing, um, points out to why she will be a great queen one day. Um, there's the, that kind of duality of that character is really well captured. But I gotta tell you, man, I think I'm gonna give it to Nicole Kidman because that scene in which she reveals everything to Amleth and kisses him gave me a visceral reaction uh, that I was not ready for. It was the one moment in all of this. Like, there's a lot of stuff here that if you're familiar with the story of Hamlet and you're familiar with some of those beats and the themes of fade and whatnot, like some of this you knew was going to happen. It's the way that story was always going to go. But that was a, a choice that I was not ready for. And it is as reviling to watch as it was meant to be in that moment. And I think Nicole Kidman executed it brilliantly. It's a it's a really well done scene. And when she thanks him for killing her, oh my god, brilliant stuff, Nicole. Um, I I just turns out she's really good at this whole acting thing. I know people are shocked to hear that she's only been doing it for what forty years now. But she's really good at it. <laughs> she is. And I would probably agree in the, the limited amount of time she has on screen. She makes probably the, the most and the best use of it. I, I do want to say uh, Klaus Bang as Fjolnir, the, the brotherless, I thought was fantastic. He did a very good job of being extremely sympathetic, especially after his son dies. You're like, well, no fucking shit. He's like, like when he's be begging for his son's body back is that's not the, that's not the queen that's doing it. It's like the father. And he's this very spiritual person and like understands that in their culture, if they can't properly pass on, on the remains, he's not going to go to, to Valhalla or to wherever they believe that he is going to end up. And I think he does a very good job at being sort of very subtly in the background. And sure. He's the dark haired, handsome evil uncle that at the beginning where he kills you know Arvindel and, and says go kill the boy and I'm gonna kidnap the woman and it all seems very real and, and understanding of why you know uh, Amleth would want revenge and then even when he's lost he's this very you know teaching Gunnar how to like fix the fence and like bringing out the slaves to be part of the the um, celebration and how he is probably more upset when Gunnar is, you know, is hurt in that, in the game that occurs and is, and is 
you know, more distraught by the death of Thorir than, than Gudrun is. And then he just sort of accepts what he has to do is like, all right, you came after my family. Like, I have to put you down. I, I have to fight you. And it's not until Gudrun and Gunnar are killed where then he goes feral. Where then he goes, it is purely my revenge. And he, like, howls for Amleth. And you know, as much as we may disagree with Amleth kind of, like, passing the buck and being like, well, of course he's going to come get revenge on you. I have to go stop him. Like, you fucking know Fjolnir would have gone to the ends of the fucking earth to kill Olga and Amleth's children. Yeah. So Amleth goes and meets him instead. And that ferocity that they both have against each other is, is Amleth's ferocity is equally matched at the gates of hell, uh, the entrance to hell by Fjolnir. Um, so I think I think he did an exceptional job as well. And, and honestly, everyone did. Everyone that appeared on screen, um, even uh, Elder Scar, who played Finner the Nose Stub, like brilliant, so well done. When he when he like does the loogie out of his nose, like just chef's kiss. What else would you do if you had no no nose? Of course, you're just gonna. Go, I just spit it out your face. Uh, but Chase, with that being said, um, I said something to you earlier in this week that I thought Andor was better than everything everywhere all at once. What were your final thoughts on the Northmen? Because I, I don't think you're going to say that it was better than everything everywhere all at once. No, nothing is. Um, everything everywhere all at once is one of my favorite films of all time. This is a very, very good film. Um, I'm going to give it... I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. I don't know, like, the the thing about 10 out of 10s um, is that you really need to save it for the things that you're going to be thinking about years from now. Um, and The Northman is going to be one of those films that, like, if someone brings it up, I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm totally down to watch it. I think it's great. I love so many things about it. There are a couple moments where maybe it's a little bit slower than maybe it could be. Um, there are a couple things that are, like, you know, it does follow a lot of the hero's journey tropes and they're, you know, not everything. Uh, there, there are some points that are maybe more, um, I don't want to say trite, but certainly predictable. Uh, and as a result, maybe it doesn't have the same like wow factor scene to scene that everything everywhere all at once had. That was a film in which you never knew what the film was going to throw at you next. This is a film in which you know what it's going to throw at you. It's just really, really good at doing it. Um, but like these critiques don't matter. It's a fantastic film. The good news is I don't have to choose. It's a binary, uh, choice that I can reject. Um, the Northman is fantastic. You should absolutely watch it. Uh, and I highly recommend it to basically everybody. If you, uh, like this kind of thing, you are going to love it. If you don't like this kind of thing, I bet you'll still find some things to enjoy. Um, Great, great work, Robert. Uh, please keep doing things like this and uh, that aren't horror related so that I can enjoy the work that you do. Um, if you do that Rasputin project that you're uh, rumored to work on, I will be forever grateful for it. I want I want the guy who made this film to do a Rasputin series so bad, Walter. Can we please make this happen? I, I'm sorry, he's doing a Rasputin series? There there, uh, there were articles, at least as far as like 2017, of him uh, working on a Rasputin miniseries, though I don't know uh, whether that's still happening. But it was a project he was tied to at one point. Interesting, because the only thing I see him future director is a movie called Nosferatu, <laughs> which currently has... Showing is the cast, Nicholas Holt, rumored Bill Skarsgård, and Lily Rose Depp, rumored. So, okay, interesting. But I'm all about a fucking Rasputin series. That would be, that would be fun. Uh, but what also was fun was The Northmen, that I'm very proud of myself that I have not called it The Norsemen at 
all throughout this because as I was talking with my partner about it prior to uh, watching it with them, uh, I was constantly calling it The Norseman, which I'm sure is another very terrible Viking movie somewhere else. But this isn't terrible. Uh, I agree with Chase. I think it's a 9 out of 10. Um, I think it has a little something for everyone. I will see that there are probably some moments that some people will find very weird or off-putting. I do think the scene um, in which uh, Arvindil and the young Hamleth and uh, Heimer the Fool, Willem Dafoe's character, are in like the basement pretending to be wolves is a little weird. And people might be like, what the fuck is that scene supposed to be about? But it makes sense because it is this sort of connection to Norse you know, Norse culture, and then further makes sense as they're calling him like a cub, you know, wolf cub, and then he becomes this like wolf bar barbarian raider. It sort of does make sense. Um, I'm rambling. It's a nine out of 10. I definitely would watch it. And Chase, I think it was a great movie to almost end 2022 with. We do have one more movie that we are going to have to get to before the end of the year. I don't know what that movie is yet. We haven't talked about it. We haven't figured out what it is. Uh, and maybe if you have a suggestion for some things that we haven't watched yet in 2022 that you would like us to get to in January prior to us getting to Oscar season, or maybe some Oscar movies we should try and get to before Oscar season officially starts. Chase, where can the good folks at home tell you to watch those? Well, first of all, I think we should keep our final film of the year a mystery and I will say it at that. Um, you can find me at Chase Watson on Twitter. You can find the podcast at Rough Drafts Pod. You can find us every week. We're not doing this on Steam Cleaners, a gaming podcast that Walter and I do, where we talk about two new games every week. Uh, and I uh, would love to have you all check that out as well. And I want to thank you all for uh, listening as much as you have over the past year. Uh, I've been looking at the stats and... Uh, all of you out there, we see you. We appreciate you. Thanks for sticking around and uh, get excited because we've got uh, plenty more where this came from. Absolutely. Um, as always, you guys can find me at CADs underscore LOL. Uh, Chase, that wasn't fucking subtle. I already know which direction you're going and I'm totally here for it. <laughs> um, listen, guys, there are layers to our machinations and uh you know i think this is gonna kind of be something that's a bit glass shattering uh when we watch it and we discuss it we will see you in two weeks for the final episode of final cut for 2022 and until then goodbye internet